Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Our topic in Lung Cancer Considered today is a new drug that has shown remarkable efficacy in the treatment of advanced non-small cell lung cancer, trastuzumab deruxtecan, or TDXD. I'm joined today by two guests that were involved in some of the early TDXD trials to learn a bit about this drug and discuss how it will fit into our treatment paradigms. Our first guest is Dr. Ludmila Bazanova. Dr. Bazanova is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, where she is leader of the Lung Cancer Unit and Fellowship Director. Luda, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. We're also joined by Dr. Julianne Mazier, professor of respiratory medicine and head of thoracic oncology at the Saint Hospitalier Universitaire de Toulouse in France. Julianne, thank you for being here. Hi, Stefan. Thank you for your introduction. Trastuzumab Derextacan is a versatile drug. This is a, an agent approved in breast cancer and gastric cancer, but our focus today is on non-small cell lung cancer. Now, TDXD is an antibody drug conjugate, relatively newer class of drugs. Luda, can you explain that drug to us and the components specific to TDXD? Uh, sure. So, TDXD belongs to a class of drugs which are known as antibody drug conjugates. To a thoracic oncology community, this class of drug is new to us because we really have not had an exposure to those compounds, but our breast cancer colleagues and GI cancer colleagues have already experienced that treatment option. So antibody drug conjugates are targeted agents uh, that have monoclonal antibody component, and through the monoclonal antibody component, they deliver and release their cytotoxic drug, which is also known as a payload or warhead. And ideally, uh, this, the cytotoxic drug is being released at the tumor site, and therefore potentially improving the efficacy of chemotherapy and reducing the systemic exposure and toxicity. So when you kind of separate the components of our antibody drug conjugates, there are a couple of things you need to be aware. First of all, how do you select your monoclonal antibody component, right? So you want to pick the antigen that is selective for a tumor and hopefully not present in the healthy tissue. You also want to select the antigen that doesn't shed, because if the antigen is shedding, then your monoclonal antibody will be attaching to that antigen in circulation and then will not have enough uh, drug to get to the tumor. Then the second component of the antibody drug conjugate, it's what's called the linker. And there are a couple of information that it's important to know about the linker. The linker has to be cleavable, right? Otherwise, the drug will not be able to be accessible to the tumor. And you want to understand where the linker cleave. You don't want a linker to be cleaved in circulation. You want a linker to be stable in circulation because if it cleaved in circulation, then you're definitely not going to have enough drug delivered to the tumor. And then the third part of the antibody drug conjugates is the chemotherapy itself. I already mentioned that this is called payload or warhead. And, and there could be different options for your payload. So specifically going back to the uh, transtuzumab deroxtecan. So the monoclonal antibody here, it's against HER2. 
your linker is stable in a circulation, but it's cleaved in the tumor once the drug gets to the tumor. And then the warhead is a topoisomerase inhibitor called exactican deruxtecan. The payload is a topa one isomerase inhibitor, which is exactican derivative. And oh, another thing I forgot. So another important part in antibody drug conjugate constructs is something that's called an antibody drug ratio or drug antibody ratio. And this um, goes into specifics of how many molecules of warhead in each antibody drug conjugate. And specifically for TDXD, the number is eight. Yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of components to an antibody drug conjugate. When I look at this, it really tells me that there's a lot of potential difference between drugs, even if they have a similar target. You know, we see a lot of PD-1 and pd one inhibitors. We see a lot of second generation, third generation TKIs that, that are more similar than different. But here, even though the target, the antigen that we're targeting may be the same, you know, the linker, the payload, the ratio of those really make each of these drugs pretty unique. So those are things to really pay attention to in the future. Let's talk about uh, TDXD specifically. You know, we've seen impressive activity of TDXD in HER2 mutant lung cancer. We had an initial analysis from Dr. Egbert Schmidt at ASCO 2020, an updated larger data set at ESMO 2021 by Dr. Bob Lee, which led to the New England Journal publication. Now, both of you are authors on that New England Journal paper. Julian, could you maybe summarize the efficacy data of trastuzumab durextecan for HER2 mutant lung cancer? Sure. And a total of uh, 91 patients were enrolled in this trial. Centrally confirmed objective response uh, occurred in 55% of the patients. Moreover, the median duration of response was 9.3 months and median progression-free survival was 8.2 months. Median overall survival was uh, 17.8 months. Importantly, efficacy was consistent across distinct clinical subgroups, including patients who had previously received HCR2-directed tyrosine kinase inhibitors and those with central nervous system metastasis, which represents 33 patients out of 91 patients. Now, while that response rate did drop a little in this expanded data set from that initial presentation, the data are pretty impressive. Luda, can you tell us a little bit about the safety of TDXD? So my experience with TDXD is uh, very, on and off the study, is very similar to what has been reported in the Journal of Medicine paper. So this is an antibody drug conjugate, right? So we have chemotherapy as a part of the TDXD. So we expect that some of the toxicities would be similar to chemotherapy toxicities that we are very well familiar in how to mitigate. So if you look at the clinical trial result, 97% of the patients had at least one adverse event that was reported by investigator as being related to uh, TDXD. If one looks at the most common side effects as defined in a publication by adverse events, which is happening in 20 or more percent of patients, majority of those adverse events were grade one and two. Nausea was seen in about two-thirds of the patients. Vomiting was seen in about one-third of the patients. Both, again, were mostly grade one and two. Important to notice that alopecia has been observed in almost half of the patients. When one looks at the 
grade three and above adverse events. The most common ones were neutropenia at about 19% and anemia at about 10%. And then 46% of the patient had grade three or higher drug-related adverse events. 13 out of patients out of 191 in the study had grade five or fatal adverse events. Two of them were deemed to be drug-related, and both of those adverse events, which fatal adverse events, which were deemed to be drug-related, were ILD or pneumonitis. And overall, pneumonitis in that study was seen in about 26% of the patients, but 75 of cases of pneumonitis were grade one and two. I think it's it's really important we look at these toxicity data. We're so used to thinking of targeted therapy as something that's very well-tolerated, pretty minimal side effects. And while this is a drug that has a target in HER2 uh, mutant lung cancer and an accompanying biomarker, the side effects are maybe a little more aligned with chemotherapy. Is that a fair thing to say? I think so. And I think that even though we you know, say that the payload or the warhead should only be released in the tumor, there is some release of the payload, you know, from the tumor. So I am not surprised to see that toxicity um, is very similar to what we would expect from chemotherapy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a well-tolerated drug. I think the safety data support that it's an effective drug, but when we're discussing this drug with our patients, it's important we think of things like myelosuppression, infection risk, and so forth, just we're in the right frame of mind. But you touched on, I think, a very important toxicity with this drug, and that's the pneumonitis interstitial lung disease, whatever you want to call it. Is that a class effect with these? So I'm actually struggling with that question because I don't see an evidence that this is a class effect. And I'll explain you why. So we have, so TDXD is currently approved in two other malignancies, which is a breast cancer, as well as gastric cancer. And in uh, breast cancer, the incidence of ILD was 9%, and the breast cancer study was very large, is about 234 patients, and the fatal ILD was 2%. The dose that was used in breast cancer studies is 5.4 milligrams per kilogram. So you can say, you know, maybe the ILD is less because the dose was less. But then once you look at the gastric cancer data, where the dose used in gastric cancer is 6.4, which is uh, similar to the dose that was evaluated in Destiny Lung trial, the incidence of pneumonitis there is also about 10%, so 12 out of 125 patients. Then we'll say, okay, maybe if it's not, you know, the drug, maybe it's cancer. And I think to answer that question, maybe it's, you know, the ILD specific to the lung cancer patients. And the reason why you're not seeing it in breast or you're not seeing it in gastric because something is different about maybe the concentrations of the drug in the lung, maybe the tumor burden in the lung. And I think to answer that question would be interesting to look at other drugs, other antibody drug conjugates, which have the same payload. So Daiichi has two other drugs with exactly the same duroxtecan payload, and this is Partrutumab deruxtecan to us, it is known as a HER3 antibody drug conjugates, which is currently being tried in EGFR mutant lung cancer. And the pneumonitis risk reported there is 7%. So it's 51 patient studies, so a little bit smaller than what we have in a destiny trial. 
And then there is another compound with also from Daiichi with exactly the same payload, but a different drug to antibody ratio. So for the transtuzumab deruxtecan, the drug to antibody ratio is eight. And then partrudimab, the drug to antibody ratio is also eight. And then we have a dapotamab deruxtecan, which is drug to antibody ratio is four. And there, the pneumonitis risk is only 6% onto the 50 patient study. So based on the comparison that I gave you, same drug, two different indications, and two other drugs, same indication, the transtuzumab deruxtecan pneumonitis risk appears to be significantly higher than what we've seen in other exploration of similar compounds. And honestly, I don't have an explanation why. The numbers of the patients in the studies at least were very similar to the other warhead-like drugs like partritumab and the potamab. So I don't have an explanation for that. would be interested to see if Julian has any. Yeah, I think we, we still need to learn a lot about this. And, you know, is it a matter of dose? Is it a matter of prior exposure to things like immunotherapy or their patient criteria? But I think an important lesson here is an awareness, you know, because when patients have symptoms that might be along the lines or along the spectrum of pneumonitis or ILD, it's important we recognize them and act appropriately. Julian, let's go to you. Any advice or thoughts about pneumonitis risk or management? Yes, I agree that it's a real concern with this drug. I agree with Luda that the specific mechanism of lung injury induced by trastuzumab deruxtecan still needs to be elucidated. I don't have clear explanation right now. What my advice is will be first that patients with lung disease history, such as interstitial lung disease, shouldn't be treated with this drug right now. We have to, to gain more insight into the mechanisms. I also recommend to inform the patient of this risk and to closely monitor the lung symptoms, such as dyspnea or cough. And something we are doing here that can be proposed for most of the patient is to give them a pulse oximetry so they can check their oximetry at home. And I think it can be useful to detect early pneumonitis. Uh, moreover, when you have some symptoms, high-resolution CT scan should be performed for all patients at screening and if ILD is suspected. As a pulmonologist, I also recommend to perform pulmonary function tests at the time of screening, so you will have a reference, and then you can see if it uh, changes over time. And in case of suspected uh, ILD, the treatment should be interrupted. I mean, the trastuzumab deruxtecan, and evaluation should include high-resolution CT scan, pulmonologist consultation, and I think we should consider bronchoscopy and bronchoalveolar lavage if clinically indicated and feasible. And the recommendation is to permanently discontinue the treatment for grade three or more toxicity. I hadn't thought of pulmonary function tests, but I guess that would give us a nice baseline. And maybe that is something we should be doing a little bit more. But awareness, definitely important for the patient, for the patient's family, caregivers, things to watch out for. Maybe a similar line, Julian, let me, let me go to this. When we think of trastuzumab, we know that we can see cardiotoxicity and a drop in left ventricular ejection fraction. And so in the breast cancer world, patients receiving trastuzumab have regular cardiac evaluations with an echocardiogram or a MUGA scan. Julian, is that something we should be doing with TDXD? Well, it's difficult to answer. As in the destiny lung study, we did not observe significant cardiac toxicity. Nevertheless, based on other studies, 
on what is reported in breast cancer and as I mean trastuzumab is part of the drug I think we should recommend to measure uh, left ventricular uh, function at screening and every four cycles when we will gain more uh, data uh, coming from all the clinical trials or from routine uh, use of the drug maybe we can decrease uh, the screening but I think for the moment we need to be cautious with that even if we don't have toxicity in the destiny link trial. Yeah, so definitely something to keep on the radar. Thinking of the other toxicities, Luda, before I move on, with regard to myelosuppression, are you using or recommending primary prophylaxis with growth factor? I do not. I follow ASCA guidelines on neutropenia prophylaxis, which recommends primary prophylaxis if risk of febrile neutropenia is more than 20%. And with TDXD, it's actually much lower Specifically for destiny trial, that wasn't reported in a publication, but if one looks at the breast cancer data, the incidence of febrile neutropenia there was 1.7%. So it's pretty low, and therefore I do not use primary prophylaxis unless patient has, you know, again, following the ASCA guidelines, if the patient has a significant comorbidity or so significant risk, but the incidence of febrile neutropenia is so low that in generally um, I am not, and neither was it recommended in a destiny long trial. Got it. Now, I want to be clear here. You know, these data that we're discussing with trastuzumab dorexican, where it's shown, I think, very impressive efficacy, are in HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer, not HER2 expressing, not HER2 IHC positive lung cancer. But Julian, we have, we do have some data in the study. There was a cohort for HER2 IHC positive, right? Yeah, you're right. We have some data coming from HER2 positive non-small cell lung cancer outside mutation. But first of all, I would like to mention that we don't know exactly what means HR2 positive. I mean, what is the relevant cutoff? So it's difficult to interpret the result based on this uh, uh, not clear cutoff. But some results have been reported with uh, TDXD or with TDM1, but in both theories, the response rate was lower than the one observed with uh, in mutated patients. So for the moment, I will say that in lung cancer, the real target is the mutation and not the overall expression. But we have to work also on this population to have more uh, relevant data. It's interesting because it's an antibody drug conjugate. And one would think that most efficacy would be based on the protein, the antigen being expressed. In breast cancer and gastric cancer, the target there really is HER2 IHC positive. But you know, here, it's different. It's HER2 mutant, as you say. And can you help me understand why why we don't see as much activity in protein overexpression as we do in mutation? It's a really good question. I think it's partially understood. Recently, elegant preclinical studies have demonstrated that HR2 mutation results in receptor hyperactivation that enhances receptor ubiquitination internalization, thereby providing a strong rationale for therapeutic targeting with antibody drug conjugate. So it has been reported with both TDM1 and TDXD. I want also to mention that compared with TDM1, a TDXD has a higher drug to antibody ratio and a more cell membrane permeable payload, which may allow for enhanced cytotoxic bystander effect on neighboring cells. So maybe that's why we observe those results. Yeah, I think the details are going to be really important, especially maybe for someone who doesn't focus just on the treatment of lung cancer that we can't say HER2 positive. You have to be much more granular in lung cancer. As you put very eloquently, it's the mutation that's the target, the HER2 mutation. And so it's important we not get those things mixed up. 
Luda, talk about a little bit of the specifics here. The dose of TDXD used in the Destiny Long One trial was 6.4 milligrams per kilogram every three weeks given intravenously. That's matching the approved dose for gastric cancer that's higher than the 5.4 mg per kg dose used in breast cancer. Are you convinced that the 6.4 mg per kg is the optimal dose? And you know, when we think of the toxicities we talked about, are those dose dependent? Um, this is a very good question um, that is not yet answered. If one look at the toxicity in a phase one clinical trial of TDXD where expansion cohorts in both breast and gastric cancers were expanded at both 5.4 and 6.4 milligram per kilogram dose, you can see that overall incidence of toxicity was definitely higher in 6.4 mg per kg cohort. I was not involved in the decision of selecting the dose for the destiny lung trial, but in the same trial I just mentioned, lung cancer patients were allowed in the study in a so-called basket cohort or solid tumor cohort, and the dose used in that cohort was 6.4 mg per kg. And that's probably why that dose was selected for the Destiny Lung. There is actually an ongoing study called Destiny Lung O2, where lung cancer patients with HER2 mutation gets randomized to 5.4 mg per kg versus 6.4 mg per kg. And the primary endpoint of that trial is overall survival. So we will know the answer to your question eventually, but right now the data that was chosen to be on the study is 6.4. And certainly, dose reductions will be allowed once the drug is approved or were allowed in the study as well. You know, these efficacy safety data, I think, are very impressive, but you know, they're all in the previously treated setting. And so let me ask sort of a question where we don't have data. Julian, if this drug were available to you today, would you ever consider using this in the first-line setting? Yeah, <laughs> it's a $1 million question. These results clearly establish a new standard of care for patients with non-small cell lung cancer harboring HR2 mutation. But, and frankly, based on the efficacy and safety data, I do think that TDXD is the most appropriate strategy in HR2 mutated patients. We also know that giving the targeted therapy in front line is the best way to ensure that all patients will be exposed to the drug and to the best treatment. If you start with chemo or chemo plus IO, maybe you will lose some patients. So in my mind, it should be the next standard, including in first-line setting. Hmm. Luda, your thoughts, any situation where you might think of using this in the front-line setting? If the patient is saying that they definitely don't want chemotherapy for some reason, I think I would consider that. I have an equipoise right now between um, using TDXD in, in first-line and platinum doublet. So I definitely would be very comfortable to offering that patient clinical trial should that trial be open at my institutions and then randomizing them to two different uh, treatment arms. I completely follow Julian's point that efficacy might be higher in the first line. And we really have very limited data on the efficacy of uh, chemotherapy in HER2 mutant lung cancer in first line setting. So the only data I've seen is a retrospective analysis of 21 patients who um, received PEMBRA plus schema in first line, and their objective response was, was 52%. And so at least um, comparing objective response in the first line chemo IO versus objective response in the second line TDXD, they seem to be somewhat comparable, not routinely offering um, that drug to my patients in first line at this point. 
But I think that you're thinking of it the way I would think of it. I mean, what we have to consider the alternative, right? Our standard first-line therapy for most patients is immunotherapy, either alone or with chemotherapy. But we know that a lot of driver-positive non-small cell lung cancers simply don't respond well to immunotherapy. While we can see high response rates to chemo IO, maybe most of that's from the chemo. You know, Julian, uh, you led the immunotarget registry, very important study. You studied immune responses in driver-positive cancers, and there was a cohort for HER2 mutant. Do you want to sort of mention what, what you found in that study? Uh, yes, you are right, Stefan. Yeah. In the immunotarget registry, 29 patients harboring HER2 mutations were treated with immunotherapy uh, given as a single agent, as a study, uh, you remember, was performed uh, five years ago. And what we observed was a very low response rate at 7%. So our conclusion was immunotherapy shouldn't be given at least as a single agent in HER2 uh, positive patient. But I think we should maybe look into more details in the data, especially maybe in HER2 uh, smokers. Maybe it's not the same story, but overall, we don't have the feeling that immunotherapy is... Um, it should be given to this patient at least a single agent. In combination with chemo, as it has been mentioned by Luda, it might be a standard of care, but we have to understand what is the role of chemo and what is the role of uh, IO in, in, this, in the combination, and we don't know yet. Yeah, I think that finally the, the contribution of those components is is important, but Julian, forgive me, let me put you on the spot a little bit here. You know, TDXD not available yet uh, in some places. If it's not available, what's your standard first-line treatment for her to mutant lung cancer? Is it IO? Is it chemo IO? Is it a dual checkpoint? What are yeah. you using standard? What I will suggest first, as said by Luda, is to enroll patients in clinical trial, and especially in the Destiny Lung Zero 4 trial that will compare at the DXD versus chemo IO. But outside clinical trial, I think we should start with a combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy. I think it's still the standard of care. And when we should offer uh, HR2 targeted drugs in second line. Mm -hmm. Luda, what about you? Let's say, let's make it a little more complicated. Let's say it's a high PDL1. Let's say PDL1 is 90%. You know, what's your standard first line treatment, Luda, for HER2 mutant lung cancer? So, first of all, I do not believe in a value of PDL1 expression in uh, non smokers with oncogenically driven tumors. And that's basically, um, partially from the work done by Julian, if you look at his immunotarget paper in the supplementary section, they actually showed the incidence of high PD-L1 expression in patients with oncogenically driven cancers, and they all have a very high PD-L1 expression. And we have experience in, let's say, an EGFR um, mutant lung cancer. And I know EGFR is not the same as HER2, where the response rate is, you know, pretty much, it was 0% in the newly diagnosed patient. So, the one answer I think is wrong in that conundrum is immunotherapy as a single agent. I will never use immunotherapy as a single agent in my patients, regardless of the PDL1 expression in HER2 mutation. I think the what's the right choice is platinum doublet versus platinum doublet plus chemotherapy. I'm personally struggling with that uh, decision. I tend to lean towards platinum doublet and maybe platinum doublet plus bevacizumab rather than platinum doublet plus immunotherapy. And one is just inferring from the other data that um, specifically immunotarget registry saying that immunotherapy, again, has minimal activity, also building upon the data in other oncogenically driven cancers 
maybe with an exception of BRAF where, um, and metaxone 14, where immunotherapy really doesn't have a lot of activity. And I think I'm also was pretty sobered by a pneumonitis risk. And if you look very carefully at the New England Journal of Medicine paper, so remember there were two fatal cases of pneumonitis. And both of those cases, immunotherapy was an immediate preceding treatment uh, once they went to the TDXD. Um, and I know we don't have the whole data set. We don't know how many of the patients who had immunotherapy immediately preceding who did not develop pneumonitis, but just I'm, I think I'm worried enough to just go with a platinum doublet or platinum doublet plus BEVA in those patients. And it's a controversial point. And I don't think we know who is, uh, what's the right answer here. It is, but you make a, you know, so many great points here, right? First, PDL one that's high, it doesn't have the same value in the presence of a driver. You know, we know that for ROS1, the median PDL1 is like 90%. And it just doesn't mean the same thing. So, you know, you can't interpret PDL1 in a driver positive lung cancer. I think that's a very important point. But that second point there, I think is very interesting. And I'd love to see more work there. So, do you think that prior immunotherapy would impact the safety of an ADC like TDXD the same way it impacts the safety of a TKI? I don't know uh, because it is not a TKI. I think we are very, I'm very sobered by the cases that were described in the sequencing IO followed by TKI. At the same time, we really don't have any increased risk um, if you follow chemotherapy after immunotherapy. And, you know, I think antibody drug conjugates are closer to chemotherapy in my mind than they are to tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And I think with the lack of reported data, and I completely agree with you that we do need to look at that information and put it in the public domain of, um, you know, what is the risk of sequencing in that situation? It's just I'm worried that both of the fatal cases were immediately after immunotherapy. Yeah. Julian, what do you think? Uh, immunotherapy, does that change the safety profile of this drug? Well, I agree with Luda. I, frankly, we don't know. We have to collect data. I just want to mention that there is a clinical trials we are participating in that is currently analyzing the combination of uh, TDXD and Burizumab. And that results will be interested also to see if we can combine uh, both uh, strategy instead of, uh, of a sequential uh, administration. So, I mean, we, we need to collect the data. Yeah, that'll give us a lot of answers. You know, a little out of order here, but for us to even consider this drug in any line, we need to be able to detect HER2 mutations. You know, and this is another reason why we need to make sure we're doing broad biomarker testing in all patients with advanced lung cancer. Luda, are most patients in the U.S. getting HER2 mutation testing? If I had to guess, I would say no. And that's mainly, again, I haven't seen any specific data of what's the percentage of patients in the U.S. that are being tested for HER2 mutation. But I think we can build upon the presentation by Dr. Roberts at ASCO looking at U.S. Oncology, which is a large community-based network, which was relatively recent. I think the latest data that they presented was from March of 2020. And in that database, only 52% of the patients were tested for five biomarkers. And the biomarkers in that study was ALK-BRAF, EGFR, ROS, and PDL one So I think we can certainly do much better in uh, penetrating uh, next-generation sequencing in our communities. And I worry that we are not testing enough uh, for patients with virtual mutations. 
Yeah, clearly, if we're only doing the those five biomarkers in half of the patients, I think the HER2 number must be much, much lower. It's something that has to change. Julian, what about in France and in Europe? Is this part of routine practice? Yes, in France, it's part of routine practice and it's reimbursed for, I mean, the vast majority of patients with advanced lung cancer uh, benefit from a systematic NGS at the time of diagnosis. So my concern is not, and it's quite easy to identify. I mean, it's a mutation or insertion. It's not a rearrangement. So it's quite easy to identify. So I don't think the, the issue in France or in Europe is uh, the detection, but I think that most of the HR2 patients won't receive uh, HR2 drugs. I think uh, we have to cover all these patients to inform all the physicians because I think it's yet considered as an, uh, I would say, an, an orphan disease without uh, dedicated drugs. So I think we we have to inform all our colleagues that we can treat this patient with uh, HR2 directed drugs. Yeah, we'll have to make sure we spread awareness here. And I think that all the answers you gave today, both of you, have been very informative. We learned quite a bit about TDXD. And I know we're running at the end of our time, but before we go, I just want to take advantage of having the two of you here with me. I wonder if we could just hear a little bit more about the two of you personally. Julian, you mentioned you're trained as a pulmonologist. You got your medical training, master's degree, your PhD, all in France. You did some training in the US as a research fellow. So can you just sort of put that in context and what led you to lung cancer specifically? Yeah, it's a long story, but yeah, as you said, I'm a pulmonologist by training, but I rapidly orient my career towards oncology as I, I think I like challenges and I understood that lung cancer was a complex disease that was clearly understudied. So I work on that. I start with a, a PhD and now a 25 years later, I'm so happy for the patients that so many progresses have been done in that field. So I think it was a, it was a good choice. Well, I agree, and I'm very grateful that, that you did, and, and certainly we're all better off for it. Uh, Luda, uh, you know, same question to you. You're based in San Diego. You've done a lot of your training there in California, but you got your medical degree in Russia. Can you tell us sort of why you decided to focus on lung cancer and maybe talk about the move from Russia to the U.S.? So my path to lung cancer can be titled as a series of fortunate events. So I um, was born in Russia, so I grew up there. I did my medical training there. I did my internship and residency there, and I was a hospitalist. And then my husband, who is a Russian-trained mathematician, finished his, defended his PhD, and he basically was looking for his postdoctoral position and decided to try ex-Russia, and he was accepted into the postdoctoral position at Salk Institute here in San Diego. And I figured, you know what, I'm just going to take a vacation. It's a beautiful city on the beach. I'm going to learn English and I'm just going to enjoy myself. And after about six months, I realized that I'm not a vacation type of person and I miss patients. I miss being a physician. So I started looking into, you know, how do I confirm my degree in the United States? And I did your usual, you know, step one and step two and passed the Examined by the time I was approved to begin postgraduate training in the United States, I just missed the match application. And so I had nine months to do something. So I worked as a clinical trial coordinator in oncology. And that's where I fell in love in oncology as a specialty because it is practiced very differently here than it was practiced back uh, when I was a physician in Russia. So when I went into the residency, I knew that oncology is going to be my calling. I 
kind of, you know, had a little deviation for about six months thinking about pulmonary and critical care for that matters. And then went back to the oncology. And then when I graduated, I actually graduated thinking I want to do sarcoma. And then when I was hired at UCSD, I was hired to build a sarcoma group. But the person who was doing lung cancer actually went on maternity leave. And they asked me if I mind for three months maintaining her panel of patients. Like, sure, I'm, you know, genuinely trained and I will do that. And she never came back from maternity leave. So that's how I became a lung cancer physician. And the rest is history. Yeah, that's... You know, I've seen a lot of people go through as a, a research coordinator into careers in medicine. I think that's a really uh, sort of interesting path. And uh, I would encourage anyone thinking of that path to reach out to me. We're always looking for good research coordinators, but, you know, fortune uh, really has shined on all of us. I'm glad that both of you made it into the field. I could talk with the two of you all day, all night, but I know that we're out of time. I want to be respectful. You've been so generous here. So thank you both for joining us today, for all your insights. Luda, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Stephen, for the invitation. That was wonderful, great discussion, and it was my pleasure to participate. Julian, uh, really, really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Luda. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. I hope you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.